Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler, and in this episode, we're going to explore, question, examine, converse, dig deep, expose, laugh, and cry about the money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges of our next guest. Turn up the volume, listen, learn, and laugh. This episode is sponsored by The Money Nerve, a financial resource that helps you have a healthier relationship with money. Do you feel shame around your past financial decisions? Do you feel alone in your financial struggles? Do you self-sabotage your potential financial successes? Do you keep making the same choices, expecting different results? The Money Nerve has just launched a new online course called The Course to Financial Freedom. To learn more, go to themoneynerve.com forward slash course. The Money Nerve has an offer to all Money You Should Ask listeners for a 25% discount on the course. Use code MYSA, all caps, 25, and start your course to financial freedom now. Thanks again to our sponsor, The Money Nerve. So I have with us today, G.K. Hunter, who is the author of Healing Our Bloodlines, The Eight Realizations of Generational Liberation. And he's also directed a movie, and I know I'm going to say it right, Sakura and Pearls. Yay, I get the nod, um, which is healing from World War II. And it's a documentary about Japanese survivors of the atomic bomb meeting with the American survivors of Pearl Harbor, which has got to be probably pretty heavy or moving, to say the least, I would imagine. Um, he is a healer that uh, has developed or discovered, created generational healing. And he's also a surfer, which I want to talk about. And uh, George, welcome. Great to have you. Thank you so much. Uh, Aloha and uh, nice, nice to tune in from afar. All right. And you are um, right now you are up in Portland, Portland, Oregon, Portlandia, AKA. Yes. I was actually uh, visiting my best friend from college for his birthday. And then uh, we got locked down and I decided not to travel and uh, been up here for the past two months. Uh, This the spring bloom has been incredible here. It's like spring on steroids, uh, flowers everywhere. Uh, it's, been, it's been an experience. So, well, that it's, so Portland, I, Portland's a neat place. It's got a neat history. I've, I've taken some of the free tours that you end up giving a $20 tip that are free. Um, it's a great place, but you, tr- you've traveled around, you, you, you're based in Hawaii, but you're in California. You, so, how did you get where you are today? In other words, you're not working a nine to five job. You're not managing a restaurant. You're out working and healing and, and doing things. How did you, how did this, how'd you get here on this path? Well, um, you know, I started off um, doing research, medical research at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And then I opened up uh, a private practice for intuitive healing. I met a physician there named Dr. Aviva Bernat at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And after I left Sloan Kettering, she referred me all these people for a clientele. So for the past 17 years, I've been working in private practice and by distance sessions, actually. Uh, And that inspired my book, Healing Our Bloodlines, which talks about all the success stories of people finding generational healing from one generation to the next that came out of my work. Uh, so now uh, I still see clients. I travel the world. I do book talks uh, and uh, make documentaries. 
Uh, so I'm, I'm scheduled to make uh, a documentary later this year in LA. And, uh, you know, we're waiting on the film festivals to hear what's going to happen during the pandemic. Uh, see if they're going to resume the, when they're going to resume the film festival. Okay, cool. And did you envision all this when you were like 10? I always knew that's funny, but I, I always knew I was going to be doing something like this. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't have told you I was going around the world surfing and having a great time. Uh, I knew I would write a book someday, but I didn't know when that would be. And honestly, I did not know I would be making documentaries. That was not in the plans whatsoever. I was not like Steven Spielberg, who was just like, you know, hitting a lens everywhere and torturing his poor sister by locking her in a closet and making films about, you know, horror films, like with his little camera as a kid. Uh, that wasn't me, but I really enjoyed making movies as well. Uh, for me, it's not about the vocation. It's about the message. I, I do all these things around one message. We can heal from generational, you know, wounding. And was that something that when you got into this, was that something that you got an inkling of this from your parents? Was it just a field that you were drawn to? Like where, like where did that initially the seed get planted? I was an odd child, Bob. I was really an odd child. I just kind of knew what I was here to do. I was very intuitive. I knew when my families were having arguments or things like that, that they weren't necessarily talking to each other. They were talking this script, right? This script. And if you look at arguments, they, this same script goes every, you know, a horrible Thanksgiving happens every year the same way. There's no real, there's no big surprises. So um, I knew when I was watching all this stuff that happens in every family, like, this is my work. And I'm a little eight-year-old, 10-year-old looking at this and say, yeah, this is my work. This is what I'm here to talk about. This is what I'm here to teach. How I was going to do it, the avenues, what the book titles were, I, I did not know I would be here traveling the world and giving talks uh, in the way that I do. But I knew I, it would be out there somehow, the information. And when you were younger, when you were eight and 10 and realizing that, do you remember, though, some of the stuff that you um, heard your parents say, like around money specifically or certain money beliefs? Yeah, I actually think both of them were always afraid of not having enough money. And, and that's because my family, both sides... Um, started from economically lower class and climbed their way up to middle class um, while I was still a kid. And uh, I think a lot of them just realized, like, you have to work hard for what you're going to get in this world. I was the first one on either side of the family to graduate from college. Um, so it was a big deal when I went to college. Um, and, you know, I, I, I kind of smile at it because um, my my mother's like the thing that was symbolic is that we could buy name brand cereals. Like we didn't just buy like wheat flakes, you know, we could buy Wheaties, you know what I mean? The one that was like the name brand. And that was like a major accomplishment in our family to have name brand cereals because they were more, they're, you know, more expensive. So um, I, I, yeah, I have a lot of respect for my parents. My dad was a laborer. He worked two jobs. Uh, he was a garbage man during the day. And he lifted heavy boxes for like postal services at night. And my mom 
you know, smashed the glass ceiling and became a vice president of her company. Uh, so they were both really hard workers. But I got the sense that you're not supposed to enjoy life now. You're supposed to work hard now. Because of how we started off, we have to work harder than, you know, usual or other people to get the same thing. And then later on in retirement, that's when you enjoy your life. That's when you're allowed to, like, smell the roses and slow down. So I, I grew up from a pretty hardcore blue collar family on both sides of the family. Okay. And did you, how many brothers and sisters? I grew up with one brother, uh, younger brother, Sean. Oh, okay. And yeah. well, you know, it's interesting. You talk about, we'll, we'll enjoy it later, right? Yeah. Later, later, later. Uh, right. and for so many people, right. Later, never, never materializes maybe. Right. Uh, so it's, that's so interesting that you say that. Um, what would you say is your least favorite thing to spend money on? Haircuts. <laughs> it's a weird one. Haircuts. I don't know what it is. Uh, I guess being a surfer dude, like I don't get my haircut as often as everybody else. And now in the pandemic, I never get my haircut. So I'm not really suffering the way people are suffering. Like there's some people with some heavy spa withdrawal right now, just yeah. like, really just like not wanting to even take a selfie because they're like no i'm hideous i cannot no don't look at me i i actually did a group meeting earlier today and someone hadn't had their hair done so they, they wouldn't put their their picture in uh they only did audio and i was like okay this is really serious for people that's i've seen a lot yeah, of zooms that way yeah <laughs> and what would you say you indulge in where you don't worry about money? Um, it going out to eat. Like, listen, if I'm, you know, worked really hard and I'm helping something out and I want to try a new cuisine, um, the sky's the limit for me, you know, plus my astrological sign is Taurus. So, uh, we tend to be foodies. I think you can relate and, and yep. we just enjoy a really savory meal. And, uh, you know, you want what you want at that moment. You don't want any, anything to impede it. That's how I am, especially when I'm traveling. Yeah. And you travel a lot? Typically, yeah. I travel pretty much every other month. Uh, I traveled to Los Angeles area a lot. I used to go to the Bay Area more often. It's much less now. Um, Hawaii, uh, New York, and Santa Fe, New Mexico are some of my regular spots. And then I have a bucket list of uh, waves that I want to surf all around the world. So I have a whole list of places that I'd, I'd really love to go. So how did you get into surfing? So I've told you my obsession with sharks and they're all going to kill me. So um, <laughs> I'll do a surfboard if it's like in a contained building yeah. or on the sand. Uh, how did you get into surfing? Um, you know, when I moved to Hawaii, I have a little bit of family out there. I went out there for my birthday, never left. And uh, one of the uncles out there, the Hawaiian uncles, he took me under his wing and he said, all right, I'm going to take you out and I'm going to show you how to how to do this. You know, I'm going to show you how to surf. And there is just such an exhilaration of being up on top of something so much more powerful than you, the ocean and what you, what it propels you and that feeling and just being able to move around on that is just absolutely astounding to me. So let me ask you this. So it just cut there yeah. at the last second with the being able to move. But uh, have you ever taken a really hard fall? Oh, yeah, plenty. I've hit I've hit um, Coral Reef before. 
uh, and I have the scars to prove it. Um, there was one time I was over at Ehukai Beach, which is the break right next to Pipeline. It was double overhead, which means it's twice as big as me. And uh, I was in a, a wave that was starting to barrel, uh, but it closed out on me. So I wound up wiping out. Um, I didn't hit any rocks that time, but I remember we have a leash connected to our feet to the board. Yeah. It wrapped around my foot and and then the board got pulled by the wave so powerfully that it ripped the skin off the top of my foot. Ah. And it took like a week for it to like really close up and heal. Um, that was just, that was just from uh, a rope burn from, from the leash. So, uh, but yeah, I've hit the reef a couple of times, but nothing where I hit my head or anything that bad. Did you ever see a shark? I have to ask. I do. And I actually have a video on my Instagram account. I happened to have a GoPro on my head the time it happened. I was 10 feet away from this shark. Hmm. The brother I was surfing with was five feet away. And he's about to catch this wave. And all of a sudden, this fin comes up. And he looks at me. And he's like, whoa. And we both like kind of dug out We once we saw that shark riding the wave. Uh, and you could tell by the shape of the fin, it wasn't a dolphin. It was definitely a shark. It was a shark. Uh, that's the closest I've ever been to a shark and knew about it. Wow. <laughs> it's possible they could have been swimming around. But uh, on certain places, yes, sharks are more prevalent. I have seen a shark. Wow. That one was probably uh, five to six foot black fin. So that's not like a great white or anything, but still enough to give take a chunk out of you if it wanted to. Okay. Yeah, I, I like watching it on TV. Much, much, much safer. <laughs> much safer. Well, let me ask you a question. I want to go. Uh, I want to go back one more time to childhood. Do you remember mm. the first time that you realized money had value? I do. I have a really weird memory of my father. He used to have. He used to have cash, and he keep the cash after his paycheck. Uh, in a top drawer. And one time it must have fallen out of his pocket or something. And it, I remember it was $200. I remember it was $200. He lost it and he was in cold sweats, a panic that he had misplaced this $200. And we were going all over the house trying to find this $200, $200. And he finally found it. It was like in, in his trousers in a closet or something that like in the laundry. So it was, it was still in the house. It wasn't sold or anything, but I remember him freaking out about $200. And I was like, wow, money must be really important. Wow. $200. He was in cold sweats. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes 200 bucks feels like a million dollars when, when money's tight. It does. And you know, nowadays 200 bucks is a lot. That's a, that's a lot of groceries. Yeah. Wow. Um, So I, you know, I originally thought when you said you were a surfer and you were traveling all around the world and going to Puerto Rico and Costa Rica and mm. all these different places. So I figured you must've been a trust fund baby. <laughs> I was figuring, I was figuring you inherited a whole bunch of money mm-hmm. and life was really good. Um, yeah. If only. Yeah. But then you mentioned your family's blue collar. Right. So yeah, I, I, you know, I grew up not ever really knowing what an inheritance was. Um, I mean, I've heard of other people getting it. And I knew people who had inherited trust funds and 
you know, I, I actually admired their grandparents. It usually had to do with their grandparents or parents, like for coming up with money like that and saving uh, for the next generation. Uh, my family, that just wasn't an option. We were day to day. And, you know, this idea, I'm, I am fascinated with people that get inheritances. Um, yeah. because you would think it's just a, something that you celebrate, like, oh, wow, look at this hundred thousand dollars. I didn't even know I was going to get. Um, that's never happened to me. So I was always fascinated when it happened to other people. But, you know, it seems like the bigger the money, you should have more celebration because it creates more ease in your life. But the clients that I've worked with and people that I've talked to about it, the bigger the sum of money it is, the more fervor there is around that money. And it seems like there's a lot of conflict about who should get it, who should get more, how much. And, uh, you know, that is a big theme that comes up in generational healing is about inheritance, financial inheritance or the house, the family house where everyone used to have parties like everyone will fight over the family house. Yeah. Why do you think it's that amazing. is? This is my theory. There's a couple different forms of currency. So we talk about money as currency, right? Right. Money is congealed energy. If you think about it as congealed energy, it's a dollar sign. It's a hard number. We can say that's a hundred bucks. That's a thousand. That's a hundred thousand. You can talk about those things, but there's other forms of currency like validation. Right. When somebody says to you, I see you, you did a good job. I understand what you mean. There's like this current, this rush of kind of goodness that just runs into you and you're like, ah, oh, it's a different kind of currency, a different current. And people will pay for that. And people will pay for someone to laugh. Laughter is a currency. People will pay money for someone to make them laugh because it makes them feel good. It, it rushes their body full of energy. It's life affirming. So people pay congealed money for that flow of energy. And nurture and protection, all these things that, and love. I mean, yeah. love. People want love. So now you grow up in a family, right? And let's just say you didn't get one of these other currencies. Validation, protection, nurture, appreciation. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Love. If you don't get these things and you were waiting for them for a very long time from a specific person, and you never get it. And God forbid, they pass away. Okay, they pass away. But guess what? You didn't get the love. You didn't get the validation. You didn't get any of these other currencies. Well, what are you going to do? Well, I better get something for it. I mean, <laughs> I was supposed to get nurture and protection. I have a whole list. So if I'm not going to get those things, I better well damn get that house. Or right. I better get a bigger share than her because she never showed up to grandpa's birthday. Yeah. It, you know, Bob, it all comes out at funerals and funerals can be very funny. Yeah. Yes, they're there to acknowledge, you know, the person you love and tell stories about them, celebrate their lives. But it creates this emotional stage, right? And you're supposed to go on that stage to grieve and celebrate. But some people jump on that stage because they had this list of currencies, all these things they didn't get. And they get on there and they start creating drama right? at somebody's funeral when it's supposed to be about the person in the casket. Somehow it becomes about them and yeah. their list of all the things they didn't get. 
And now the person's gone, so it's too late. So now I want money so I can sit on the couch. I want to be able to eat Ben and Jerry's. I want to quit my job and tell my, my boss to screw off. And this money is my way to do it. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there's a cost though when you, it's interesting because, right, if you get this big sum of money for your payout, you also then have to lose the people uh, that gave you the money, uh, which for some people that may right. be no big deal. I, I don't know. Um, but it's it's such a catch 22 of, of, oh, I really want this money, but then somebody has to die for me to get it. Uh, but I'm sort of entitled to it, but I'd rather they stay alive so I can be mad at them. Um <laughs> Because right. once they leave, you can't really express your anger. It's right. well, it's amazing to me how many people don't take care of their inheritance. Like people, like I've had clients that say, "I'm not going to plan any inheritance for anybody because then everybody's just going to wait for me to die, and so I'll just pretend like it's not going to happen, right? And then just not take any responsibility." But I've also right. seen, I've had, I've had clients and friends where. Somebody's the caregiver. They're going to inherit all the money. Mm -hmm. Recently happened. The mom lived to be well into her 90s. Mm -hmm. So the caregiver didn't get it until late in life. Right. Everything just got transferred and she passed. Oh. And now the sister who kept to the distance, wasn't attached, is now going to get everything. Wow. Um, and it's like – Live for tomorrow. Right? Living for tomorrow and banking on that money instead mm -hmm. of in the moment. And it's it's sad because I see this a lot yeah. where I, I've had clients, you know, I'm waiting on my money and this person just hasn't died yet. And like it's, oh, you wow. know, it's messing up my financial planning. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, and it's this place of. I don't know. For me, it's interesting because I, I don't expect to inherit anything. Um, I have to create my own safety net. Uh, I'm okay with that. And uh, I don't have any expectation. Um, and I feel really like I feel compassion to these people that aren't able to get out of that because they're really, they're really invested emotionally yeah. on this financial payoff. You know what it really boils down to, though, Bob? You talk a lot about money beliefs on your show. Yeah. I've heard a couple of episodes. Yeah. Uh, it really comes down to you owe me. That's yeah. the belief. I didn't get this. I didn't get protection, validation. I didn't get love. I didn't get encouragement. I didn't get validated. I didn't get all these things. You owe me. You owe me something. You owe me something that makes my life more comfortable. Or it, I'll take that money and I'm going to go to the Caribbean or something like that. Like you owe me. And they put all that energy into that belief of you owe me. I should get this. And that belief, you know, they, they put everything into it, but they don't realize all that energy could have gone somewhere else to make money or to enjoy their life in some other way. Yeah. Or even work on repairing the relationship <laughs> that, exactly. where they didn't get what work they thought the they relationship. deserved. Exactly. Yeah. When you work with people on healing that, when it comes up, mm -hmm. how do you approach that? You know, I, I think it's important to let them be angry. When people are secretly angry, but they deep down inside believe that somebody owes them something, you really can't move it. You're not going to move the block, the roadblock, until they have their anger. And once the anger starts coming up, 
and they're either screaming at a chair as if they were talking to the person, writing letters and burning them, or releasing it out of their body very somatically. Until you move that fire, you really can't do much of anything. And that's something that I really saw happen uh, in the documentary I was telling you about, Sakura and Pearls. Mm-hmm. These were people who had survived the attack on Pearl Harbor and the atomic bomb, in this case, in Hiroshima. And they had a lot to be angry about. And you absolutely can hold on to anger all the way into your 80s and 90s. You absolutely are able to do that. Uh, and they were allowed to express their anger and hurt to their former enemies. And there was something very transformative about that, that it just seemed like something in the air, the elephant in the room kind of got out of there and it just opens up the path where you can actually get at the belief. And then you can change the belief in an empowering way, not in a, oh, I lost something. I just need to get over it. No, I'm angry about it. I have a right to be angry about it. But now that I have all this fire coming up, maybe I don't want to be stuck anymore. Maybe I want to turn all this fire into to one of my dreams and make my dreams happen. And maybe, you know, life brings me abundance in a different way. So what would you say to somebody that's listening that wants to heal a relationship going, you know, back through the bloodline or that's holding on to this anger that's holding on to you owe me uh mm-hmm. like what what would be the advice you tell people what be honest with yourself if that's what you feel be honest stop judging yourself for feeling that way and write a letter that you'll never send and i emphasize you will not send this letter write a letter to someone who's not listening to you and write their name on it and write what it is that they're not giving you And then read it once for yourself, just so you can hear that this is what's going on inside, and then burn the letter. Start there. Don't send the letter, because usually the first splashes of anger are not the wise anger. It's more the splashy anger. It's more the cathartic anger. And once that anger comes out of you, the fire will get more refined. And what you say, it won't be demeaning, and it won't be splashy. It'll be very focused. So writing that letter, being honest with yourself, burning the letter after you read it starts to clean your fire off. You got to clean your fire off. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the first step of the cleansing process I can give to someone who's listening to this right now. You don't have to wait for a session to do that. Do that yourself tonight. Be honest with yourself. And then once the fires run through you several times, be honest with the person who you feel like really did you wrong. Yeah. Talk to them after you cleanse yourself it'll be more productive that way you know there's something so precious about forgiveness and no amount of money bob in the world can replace what that man gave me over pancakes and coffee Mm. that i would i would have paid a million dollars for that moment and him and i gave it to each other for free no expectations of anything else let bygones be bygones it took him a lot of courage to do it. It took me a lot of work to get there, but absolutely. And, um, you know, I didn't inherit anything from him. And I honestly, when he died, I didn't think he owned me a penny because yeah. uh, he had given me something money couldn't buy. So what I'm hearing you say is that uh, to actually be authentic in what you're feeling in the people you're in relationship with, uh, with a bit of forgiveness 
and right. like that actually that we have to do the work like like we all have to do the work um and that um that that's actually a priceless gift to be able to be in relationship with people and speak all that's true and be able to have forgiveness. Yeah. And I would say, do it for yourself first because something gets quenched inside and then you'll be able to do it for with somebody else. So that's why I say, write the letter for yourself first right. and then talk to the person second in that order. Cause you got to pour into your own cup before you try to pour into somebody else's cup. Yeah. And the other piece that I didn't say is that uh, don't count on anybody else to be your financial savior. Uh, like live your life, live it exactly now in the moment. Don't wait till later to enjoy it or have whatever you need, but like show up and, and uh, be in the moment. Live life now. Live life now. I love it. I love it. Where can people find you on social media and where can they find out about your book and your documentary? The portal to everything, my book, social media, documentary, telegraph. No, I'm just kidding. GKHunter.com. GKHunter.com. And uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. And uh, yeah, just come to the website. There's a free blog there and uh, you'll find uh, some free talks there as well. And if people want to have one-on-one -on -one sessions with you, they can reach out to you through that as well. Absolutely. I've just opened up a few extra sessions uh, to help people out through these tougher times for June and July. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on to our audience. I want to say, don't forget to share the love. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram search for money. You should ask all one word. And you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast player. George, it's been great having you here. I so appreciate it. Um, thank you to The Money Nerve sponsoring this show. And uh, yeah, aloha. Is that, is that appropriate? Aloha. Aloha. Perfectly. Aloha. Aloha. Aloha.